Now, on April 16, 1999, at the age of 38, uh, Wayne Gretzky, the, the greatest hockey player of all time, announced his retirement from the NHL, effective the, the end of that season. Now, um, he's the only player to ever accumulate 200 points in one season, um, and he did this four times. Now, if you don't follow hockey, you don't care about hockey, that's okay. I just need you to understand that's like crazy good to put up numbers like that. And so Gretzky, he tallied 100 points in 16 seasons. 14 of those seasons were consecutive from the time of his retirement in 1999 up until this past Thursday, um, he held 61 NHL records. Now, I say up until this past Thursday because Austin Matthews, uh, the Leafs superstar, he, he surpassed one of those records, and go Leafs, go. Um, but, but many of these records that, that Gretzky ha, ha holds, they're probably not going to ever be beaten. He also won four Stanley Cup championships. And so this is why people call Wayne Gretzky the great one. Now, some people wondered why Wayne Gretzky decided to retire when he did, because he had led the NHL in assists two of the past three seasons. Wayne Gretzky led the the New York Rangers, his team, in scoring the three past seasons. And so, like, he was still playing really, really well. But this is one of the reasons why Wayne Gretzky chose to retire when he did, because he understood that he could not sustain the level of play um, that he was playing at forever, that, that if he kept playing, um, his play would slowly get worse with age, with, with fatigue, and with injury and all of these things. And so he always said, when I leave the NHL, I want to leave the fans wanting more of me, not, not wanting less of me on the ice. And so he wanted to retire on his own terms, not, not kind of be forced to, to leave the game because he just wasn't playing as well. And so knowing he wasn't really going to get better or improve beyond that point, and understanding there were limits to his growth and performance as a player, and that, that time was going to start working against him soon, he chose to retire while he was close to the top. Now, you're going, okay, what does all of this have to do with discipleship and, and the Bible and all of this? Here's what I want. I believe that some of us may have think, or may, may think we've hit the proverbial ceiling in our growth as a disciple. Some of us um, might think that we've, we're at the top of our discipleship career and, and we don't expect to progress beyond the point we're at right now. And for lack of a better term, we don't expect to be performing better in years to come. And it's not that we're, we're going to retire from being a disciple, but, but we, we have this thing is like, this is probably the best it's going to be. And so we kind of settle for, for status quo in our faith and, and kind of go like, I guess this is what it's going to be until Christ returns or he calls me home. But, but I have to ask, is there, is there a ceiling? Is there a limit to our growth as disciples? Or does, or does God have more for us, regardless of what point we're at? And so if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to 2 Peter chapter 1. And that's where we're going to be most of this morning. But, but as you're going there, just to give you some context for this letter, Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter, he writes this letter to combat a false teaching, a heresy known as Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism taught was, well, it took some Christian teachings, a lot of Christianity, but then it added to it. 
And so one of the things that it would say is that what is tangible, what is physical, what can be touched, that's evil. And so the, the physical world, they would say, is evil. And so human beings being flesh and blood, tangible um, creatures, they would say, are evil. They're, they're incapable of being or doing good. Another teaching of Gnosticism was that there were secret truths or, or secret knowledge that only certain special people to whom God had revealed it to um, had access to and, and could know and understand it. In other words, there were, there were people who had information um, that the rest of the world was not privy to. And so it left a lot of Christians looking at their faith going like, what's, what's the point? Like, I'm, I'm, I don't know the secret knowledge. I, I guess I'm not one of God's favorites um, to, to know these things. And I, I'm a flesh and blood physical being. And so I guess I'm incapable of knowing, being, or doing good. It left a lot of people discouraged in their faith. Now, I, I don't think Gnosticism is present in our church. Like, that's not where I'm going with this. But here's the thing. I think some of us may feel similar to, some of these, how, to, to how some of these early Christians felt. Like, have you ever looked at another Christian and thought, man, I wish I was as passionate for God in my relationship as, as that person is? Have you ever looked at another person and go, man, I wish my, my prayer life was as vibrant as their prayer life? Have you ever looked at somebody and go, man, I wish I, I understood Scripture like that person does? I wish I could teach Scripture like that person does. I wish I was as handsome as our lead pastor is or something like that. But you could fill in the blank with some spiritual trait and, and say, I wish I was like that person. And some of us may think God has given certain Christians an advantage not available to most when it comes to relationship with God and being used by God for His purposes and like maybe some of us even having, having been told or the way we grew up start, start to believe, you know what, I'm not capable of being good. I'm not capable of doing good. Just kind of some people might have pressed that message into you. And so I don't want to ignore the role of spiritual gifts in, in our lives. But here's the thing, there's something that is more important than spiritual gifts. And if we ignore it, we might settle for something less than what God intends for us. And so 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Peter says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in this world caused by evil Desires. Now, two weeks ago, we kicked off this series in Matthew chapter 4, 19, where Jesus says, come follow me and I will make you fish for people. And we, we got our definition of what a disciple is from that. A disciple is someone who is following Christ, is being changed by Christ, and is committed to the mission of Christ. And so in other words, a disciple is somebody who, who Jesus is changing their, their attitudes, their affections, and their actions. Jesus is changing their head, their heart, and their hands. Now, Peter, when, when he says, um, God has given you everything that you need for, um, to participate in the divine nature or godliness, he's not saying that you are going to become a god. Like, don't, don't walk away going, ah, I'm going to be a god. This is pretty awesome. That's not what Peter's saying. He's saying you will become increasingly like 
him. And so the goal of our faith is godliness to become more Christ-like. Now, I, I don't know every person in this room. I know some of you, and, and you're pretty good, decent people. There could be somebody who's a horrible person here. I don't, I don't know. But here's what I know. As good as you are, as good as you are, you might put the rest of us to shame. When you compare yourself to God, you just aren't that good. You're not that impressive. And so if we have this scale, I mean, God is way up there when it comes to goodness and holiness and righteousness and, and, and being perfect and just. And, and on this scale, I, I don't even know where to put us on it. And so when it comes to growing in godliness, my point is this. You, you haven't arrived. You, you always have room to go up, room to improve. Um, we don't arrive. Christ arrives for us. That, that, that perfection, that, that, that fully comes in when Christ returns or we go to be with him. Now, when I was in, in college, I took a distance course and it was called History of the Restoration Movement. It was done mainly online. And you're going, History of the Restoration Movement sounds pretty exciting, I know. Um, it, was, it was actually pretty good. But, but one of the assignments my professor gave was this. He, he sent us a, um, a bunch of links to an online journal. And there were four articles we had to read. And then we had to answer a series of questions um, for each article. So I sit down to do it, click on link one. And 404 error, page not found. I try it again, doesn't work. Okay, I'll figure it out. Article two, 404 error, page not found. Oh no, okay. Art article three, same thing. Article four, same thing. I'm going, okay, this isn't good. So I talked to some of my other classmates. They said, I got the same thing. We send an email to our professor um, going, the, the, the links you sent just, just aren't working. Now here's the ironic thing. For a distance course taught online, which re like required a lot of internet. This guy was not technologically inclined, and he checked his email maybe once or twice a week. And so we're waiting for his response. Deadline is approaching. Um, and he finally gets back to us and he goes, oh, apparently that online journal doesn't work anymore. I just copied old links and assumed they would work. And it had moved. And so he found the new links and he, he sent them to us. And he was so gracious to extend the deadline by two days. We, we loved him for it. But, but what was frustrating is this. He gave us something to do, something that he required from us. And then he, he actually kind of failed to provide us what we needed to be able to do what he wanted us to do. Maybe you've experienced that when you, you've tried to um, cook something and you go, oh man, I'm missing this ingredient, I can't do it. Or, you, or you're doing a project and you discover you're missing something that's essential to completing it. That, that's not a good feeling. Now look at what Peter says in verse 3. God has given us everything we need to become godly. And if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to take out a pen, underline that, highlight it, circle it. That's, that's an important word, everything. God does not leave you hanging. When it comes to doing what God wants you to do, God has given you everything you need. You're not missing something. There's nothing that you can um, kind of add to it to improve upon what God has given you. He has given you everything to become like Christ. 
Now, now Peter says the divine power necessary to live a godly life, it comes through our knowledge of God. And so the Greek word for knowledge here, it's not simply talking about head knowledge, the things that you know. The word for knowledge in in verse 5 is talking about a kind of knowledge that comes with familiarity or intimacy of relationship. And so Peter is saying that those who are intimately familiar with Jesus are those who have access to the power to become godly. Now, our goal is to become like Jesus. And so in order to become like somebody, you have to know that person well. Uh, like, th- think about it. Kids, we, we all said this as kids. Like, we go, I hope I don't grow up to be like my parents or something like that. But you, like, you get old and you're like, oh man, I am my dad or I am my mom. And the reason that happens is because you've spent time with them. You're, you're familiar with them couples who've been together for years, slowly you start to notice, man, they are almost the same person. Like they, 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 they become more and more alike the time they spend together. And this is the thing. Familiarity produces similarity. And so I ask this question, where is the primary place we go to to know more about Jesus and grow in relationship with him? The Bible. You guys did so much better than, than the 930. At least you guys did way better than the 930 service. The rest of you, shame on you. You should have answered better. That's a Sunday school answer. But, but the concepts and principles of Scripture, they're, they're from God. They're given through the minds of the inspired apostles and prophets. And in, in, in the Bible, God is revealing who he is so that we can grow familiar with him. And as this, this like his spirit interacts with the word, and shapes us into Christ's image. And so the great and precious promises from God come to those who know him intimately, and our primary source of knowing who God is, is his word that he has given us. Now what this means is that, and I'm talking to Christians and disciples here, what this means is that none of us have an excuse for not pursuing godliness. When it comes to, to trying to grow in godliness, I don't know what excuse we could give that's valid in 2018. Because really, like, how difficult is it to find a Bible? We, we give them away for free in our Welcome Center. You don't got a Bible? We will give you one as our gift to you. But like, I can open up my phone, and within seconds, I have access to over 1,700 different translations of the Bible in 1,200 different languages. We live in a day and age where there are thousands of books that teach us how to read scripture and explain what scripture means. And so if as disciples our goal is to be changed by Christ, become more like him, it means that we need to put a premium on reading God's word, but also understanding it. And so God empowers you to live a Christ-like life through your knowledge and relationship with him. And so this is why one of Satan's goals will be to keep you out of your Bible. Because when you get into this book, you're ex- accessing the knowledge, the relationship that is required to become godly. That power. So please understand, just, just reading the book, knowing the book, being able to quote verses and, and recall information, that does not guarantee godliness. You, you have to kind of live that out and apply it in your life. But, but here's the thing. Ignorance of God's word, that seems to be a pretty good recipe 
for ungodliness. Now verse 4, it says that God has given us great and precious promises in his word which lead to godliness. And so some of these promises, forgiveness of sin, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, transformed life, that Christ will return, that we will go to live with him forever in eternity and much more. Now, as, as Christians, the longer we've been in this thing, sometimes we grow numb to, to these promises. They're just like kind of old news and we're, we're so familiar with it. But like just stop and consider that, that God would do this for us. When scripture says um, we were once his enemy, that we had rebelled against him. And so looking at these promises, knowing who we are, we, we see that God is a good and gracious God. And when we keep these promises in front of our eyes through Scripture, we have the power to resist temptation and choose what is good and right because we know that what God has planned for us is better than whatever that temptation will lead to. And so the source of divine power for godly living is found in relationship with Christ and knowing and trusting the promises of God. Now, here's the thing. I don't expect much of what I just said there to make sense to you if you're not in God's word. Because here's the thing. It's just one of those things you have to experience to understand. When when you spend time in God's word, you, you start to understand that these aren't simply words on a page. It's not a super old book translated into modern language, you start to get that these words are living and active, that there is, there is power in what is said in this book and the relationship that comes from it. Now, why does God give us this so that we can become godly, so that we can become Christ-like? Well, Jesus, he, he tells his disciples, you are going to be my witness to the world. You see this, this theme. And, and Jesus knows that if his disciples reflect who he is to others, they will see this and they'll want to come to know Christ himself. Now in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16, Jesus, he, he talks about how his disciples, they are, they are the light of the world, a city on a hill. You don't hide your light, you, you let it shine so it gives light to everyone else. And he, he says, let your light shine, they might see your good deeds and give your Father in heaven praise. And so our lives as disciples are meant to point others to Christ. Um, that, that is part of being a disciple, the commitment to Christ's mission. And so we, we are as light to bring the light of the gospel to our homes, our schools, our, our workplaces, wherever we go, that, that people might see this. It might point them to what is good and true. Now, God is the source of power to live the godly life. And, and the cables that carry those promises are the promises that we find or carries the power, are the promises that we find in his word. Now, on my own, I, I can't shine. Like, I, I'm just not capable of doing it. Not that impressive, not that wise. But when I'm plugged into the power of God, and I'm believing those promises that are found in his word, that's when I will start to shine. That is when my life starts to point others to Christ. When other people take... That's when people will take notice. That's when I will stand out in dark times. Now, God has given us his word to mold and shape us into the image of his son so that our lives point others to him. 
And so as disciples, we cannot neglect the word or we unplug ourselves from the source of our power. We cease to shine. We cease to live effective lives in our homes, our schools, our communities, wherever we are. And so the word is essential for living a godly life. We need to have intimacy with Christ. But, but let's be real for a second. Um, talking to, again, mostly Christians and disciples in here. Um, many of us, we, we own a Bible or, or two. To my shame, I own over 20. Uh, <laughs> if I come close to collecting anything, it's actually the Bible. But here's the thing. Many of us, we, we own a Bible, but it sits on our nightstand or, or on a shelf, neglected, unopened for days, weeks, months. Um, the Word of God kind of sits alone, neglected, gathering dust. And we'll say, well, it's, it's, it's hard to understand. It, it's boring. I just don't think it's that necessary for my walk as a believer. And here's what I've discovered, and I think we just got to be honest. It's not that as disciples we can't understand God's Word. God has given us everything we need for godliness. It's that we don't try. We don't put in the effort required. But look what Peter says in the next verse, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Now, Peter's point is this. God has given you everything you need to become godly, so strive to become godly. I don't know if you've ever watched any of those cooking competition shows, like, like Master uh, Chef, and, and you got, what, what's that guy's name, the angry one? Gordon Ramsay. Um, I, love, I love how he interacts with people. But you watch those shows, and, and they, give, they give every contestant the same ingredients. They give every contestant the same tools, and they say, make something. And so it's kind of level playing field to start, and the determining factor as to who comes out victorious is how they use what they have been given. Some use it well, and others don't. And so, in the same way, God has given us everything we need to become godly. We all have access to that. But the measure and the maturity of your godliness largely depends on how you choose to use what God has given you. Now, Peter, he lists these virtues that the the New Testament says are the results of faith, They're Christ-like virtues. And so he says they're goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and finally love. And we could spend a lot of time discussing each one of these. We'll we'll be here till about two o'clock if we did that. So we're we're going to simplify this. And Peter's saying this. Faith must take a concrete form in your life. Faith isn't something that's abstract. Faith isn't something that's unable to be seen. Faith Um, is not something you merely confess in Christ. Our faith is to change how we live. We are to strive to live as Jesus lived, as Jesus taught. 
And so the list, it begins with faith, it ends in love. And, and, and here's what Peter's saying. You plug into the promises of God and what he has in store through faith. And, and through his word and through the work of the Spirit, he sanctifies us. We become more like Jesus. And over time, eventually, we become people who love others, even our enemies. And we show them the way into God's kingdom. And love, it's this selfless attitude that sacrifices for the good of others. In John 13, 35, Jesus says that love is the identifying mark of his disciples. And so love is the final result of godliness or maturity in Christ. And think about it. Everything that God has done for you, that you find in Scripture, that he, he is doing in your life, that he will do, that love is the underlying motive. You look at how Jesus interacts with people in the New Testament, and, and even when he's rebuking sin, he's calling out prideful attitudes, love is, is there. He's doing it because he loves the person. He's calling them to something what is true and better. And so Christ-like loving people, they get the opportunity to influence and speak into the lives of others, which is what discipling others about, is about. Like That's being a fruitful disciple is, is, is speaking in the lives of others and leading them to Christ and to maturity. Now we can, we can go like, well, those things are nice to hear and I wish I could be one of those, those people, but, but I'm just, just not one of those people. So, so well, well. But, but look at what Peter said in verse five. Make every effort. Underline that, that sentence there if you've got your Bible. And Christ-like virtues, they're not something you, you just are by default. They're something you need to cultivate. They're something you need to um, work on in your life. It takes effort. It takes discipline. And so for every Christian that you've looked up to and said, man, I wish I could be like them, um, for whatever trait you see, chances are that did not come naturally to them. They, they had to work on that. They had to put effort in. They had to discipline. They had to um, do what it was required to get to that point. And so Kyle Eileman, he, he's a pastor in the States. He says this, we settle for good intentions instead of being intentional. And if we want to live as godly, um, as godly people, if we want to live effectively as disciples, we need to be committed to godliness and not just fond of the idea of it. And so the power to do it is from God, but the participation is from us. We need to do our part, and, and good intentions aren't enough. And, and Peter says you need to make the effort. Now, if you, if you don't make the effort, I, I promise you, you're not going to naturally drift towards godliness. You, you will not just naturally become a godly person through no effort. Um, think about it this way. No captain leaves a harbor and says, okay, guys, let the rudder loose. We're just going to let the wind, the waves, the currents, the, the tides, all that. It's just going to take us to where we need to be. It, it will just work out. Don't worry. No, like they, they plot a course. They make corrections along the way when necessary. And in the same way, if our plan as disciples is like, I, I, I've been saved. I've given my life to Christ. Now I'm going to get to godliness, but I'm, I'm just going to kind of take my hands off the wheel that steers the rudder of my soul, and I'm just going to get there. It's not going to work. You will not naturally drift towards godliness. You, you'll end up somewhere else, somewhere that you do not want to be. And so Peter says that if a person does not press forward in these qualities, they become spiritually blind. They, they can't see where they're going. 
And so when they look to the future, it's, it's a haze. They've forgotten the promises of God. They can't see where they're going. They're concerned about earthly things. And so we say they're, they're nearsighted. But when they look to the past, the forgiveness, the new life that they, they first experienced when, when they were saved, they kind of forget that. It's, it's kind of gone away. They've grown numb to it. And, and they, they cease to be plugged into the source of power, which makes their faith weak and anemic. And here's the thing. This is why a lot of people eventually walk away from the faith because they were excited to get saved. They were excited to get into a baptistry, but they never got into God's word, which is a source for a godly life. Now, verses 10 and 11. Peter says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and I honestly, I wish I had a lot of time to unpack those verses and just kind of talk about it because there's some cool things in there. But Peter's saying, when we neglect God's word, we do it to the detriment of our own faith, but to the salvation and growth of others. And so you, you can't live effectively as a disciple if you cease to be changed by Christ. You can't lead people to him when you are spiritually blind. You can't live as light when you're not plugged into the source of power. So God has given everything for godliness. So strive to become godly. And so are you making every effort towards goodness to increase your knowledge of God's character and his will to strengthen your power of self-control to enlarge your capacity to persevere, to develop a heart like God's heart, to grow in your affection for your fellow believers, and to love even those people that you find unlovable? Are you making every effort to become more like Jesus, or have you settled for status quo in your faith? And please understand, I'm not saying you're called to make this effort alone. That's not what discipleship is about. Making the effort is, is about opening yourself up to be discipled by others who have kind of progressed further along. And so if you're going, I, I, I'm, I'm status quo, I'm not being discipled, find somebody. Ask us to help find somebody to disciple you, to kind of bring you along further in these godly traits. But it doesn't stop there. Then you find somebody and you teach them what you know. This is, this is what being disciples is all about. You growing in godliness, but you helping others to grow in godliness. So God's word, it warns us about being lazy in our faith. It says, fight the good fight. Lay aside everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Run with perseverance the race marked out. Press on toward the goal. Grow and advance in virtue and knowledge. And in doing this, you reassure your hearts and are confident that we're going to share in God's glory and his excellence in his kingdom. And so are you making every effort to grow as a disciple or have you settled? And here's the thing, regardless of where you are as a disciple, God has more for you. So don't take your eyes off the beauty of God's promises.